We're going to continue our study in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, we've already considered Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that he made, the false god or idol that he had formed or fashioned, that it be worshipped, and there be a declaration made that all would worship it when they would hear the sound of the horn or the flute or the lyre or the trigon or the psaltery or the bagpipe or any kind of music. It'd be kind of an interesting thing. There'd just be any kind of music that would ring out and he's commanded that if you just hear any kind of music, you just need to bow before this idol. It takes a little bit of moxie, doesn't it, to think that way. We're going to continue this morning looking at verses 8 through 18. I'll read those passages and then we'll begin. For this reason, speaking of the mandate to worship the golden image, for this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's kind of our southern version of those names. If we were to pronounce those in a more proper way, it would have a lot more of a sound to it. Um, And we don't normally do that, and if I did that today, it wouldn't go well. (laughs) These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Well, this morning we continue in this study. We've already looked from the end of chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel. We saw at the first portion of chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar honored himself with the making of the image. But this morning, I've changed the wording of this. I I don't have the proper word probably, but it's the best I can work with. Nebuchadnezzar honored snitches. You can call them whistleblowers, blabbers, tattletales, squealers, finks, narks, rumor mongers, muckrakers, fat mouths, sleaze mongers, or stool pigeons. Any of those will do. I just chose to call them snitches. Nebuchadnezzar honored snitches. We see in these passages, firstly, the malicious Chaldeans snitched against Daniel's friends. The malicious Chaldeans snitched against Daniel's friends. It's pretty obvious in the text what happened with the Chaldeans. They decided to give up Daniel's friends and call them out in front of the king. And they essentially were these tattletales. And there's a question, though, of why. And I think the text helps us see some of this. Why did the Chaldeans tattletale on Daniel's friends? Well, the most obvious and pertinent reason is they coveted against them. They coveted against them. Because in verse 11 it says, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire. And, oh, by the way, O king who lives forever, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. They just didn't go after him because they were Jews. They went after him because these three men had been appointed to higher offices. Now, I will say, uh, a lot of questions are often asked as to why is Daniel not in this particular uh, place and time, and why is he not thrown into the fire? The text doesn't reveal to us where Daniel was or what he was doing in the moment and why he was not brought into this. But it's pretty obvious um, that at this point, point, these Chaldeans thought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were the ones that that they had a better chance of, of bringing down. And that's what they chose to do. And it was covetousness that brought them to this place. It should cause us to understand some things about these men and why they did what they did. They were coveting the position, the status. They were coveting things in their own life 
and heart that they wanted and didn't have. Firstly, under this section, the malicious Chaldeans snitched against Daniel's friends. Sinners covet by nature. Sinners covet by nature. If you spend time looking at the Tenth Commandment, you would recognize that the Tenth Commandment is really a summation. It's really an overarching theme of these sins that have been brought before the people of God. What does it mean to covet? Thomas Boston has a good section in his second volume on the Ten Commandments, and one of them particularly on the Tenth Commandment. He said, It is a strict boundary set to the unbounded desires of the heart. Why have the Tenth Commandment? Because it's this strict boundary set to the unbounded desires of the heart. He says, in covetousness, there is an act. There's a command, you shall not covet, but in it is the understanding, as Paul put it in Romans 7, 7, you're not to lust after these things. When Paul uses that word lust, Boston points us to the idea of of coveting in this context. It is an excessive, disproportionate desire, a feverish motion of the soul towards the creature, irregular and disorderly, and so a dissatisfaction with one's present condition. The Chaldeans were saying, you know what? I don't like my present situation. And I don't like that these guys have taken away the possibility that I may get what I want. They're in my way of getting what I want. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. These men were discontent. They were discontent with what they have. They just wanted more. It wasn't just possessions. It wasn't just that they wanted a, a, a nicer house or a bigger this or a bigger that. They wanted the position and the status. It helps us to understand why the Tenth Commandment is such a summation Because it deals not only with coveting something, the object, but it deals with the act of our very hearts. In that summation, it should tell us some important things. We should not covet God's being and sovereignty. The first four commandments. So this was the problem in the garden, wasn't it? When Adam and Eve heard the lie. These Chaldeans were saying, I want that power. I want to be that person. And don't think for a minute that those Chaldeans, if they could find a way to get rid of Nebuchadnezzar and one of them be the king, that they wouldn't have done it. Nebuchadnezzar was not safe either. If they could find a way, they'd get rid of him too. 
and ultimately all of humanity covets the very sovereignty and being of God and wants to say, I am my own God. I am sovereign. Leave me alone. Most of the time when people cry out for personal autonomy, when a young person says to a parent, just leave me alone, let me figure it out. They're saying, I'm in control, I'm my own God, leave me alone. When an adult says to a friend or even an employer, leave me alone, I'll figure it out. We're often in our own hearts saying, I'm my own God, leave me alone. Not only does it sum up those first four, but it goes through the second grouping and the five before it. We should not covet our neighbor's station or authority, the fifth commandment. We should not covet our neighbor's physical well-being, the sixth commandment. If we're to protect life, In the sixth commandment, we shouldn't covet our neighbor's well-being. We covet their life. Why don't I have their life? Why don't I have their health? You ever seen that person who just kind of eats whatever they want? It doesn't seem to faze them at all. They're always the same size. They always are healthy. And you just look at them and go, why not me? I mean, God, you gave me a raw deal here. They ate four donuts and it's no problem. I looked at one and it was a problem. You see, we can covet those things in our own minds and hearts. We should not covet our neighbor's spouse, the seventh commandment. Are you content with the one that God gave you? Not only in that contentment in the sense of just satisfaction, but do you thank God for the spouse that he gave you? Do you praise God for the spouse that he gave you? We should not covet our neighbor's possessions, the eighth commandment. And we should not covet our neighbor's reputation or status. The ninth commandment. See, oftentimes when we lie, we're lying because we're trying to either cover something up or make something seem not as it is or better than it is. And we're often trying to improve our own reputation and status in our lying. we've done something we shouldn't have and someone says well did you do that well no I didn't do that why would I respond that way because I don't want that person disappointed in the answer that I would give yes I did do that because I look at that person and say 
that's a person that didn't do that thing or doesn't do that thing. Or I know people that don't do that. I don't want that reputation. I don't want that status. I covet the way these other people look, and I want to make myself look that way. So we lie. If you get a chance to go read Thomas Boston on this, I encourage you. It's a full section. It'll take you a little time, but it's worth it. He rounds out one of his paragraphs by saying, For all covetousness implies a discontent with our own condition. With our own condition. We can look at these Chaldeans and we can see the problem and we can even say about them, that's just wrong. But we have to be careful if we start to say, well, I'll never be like them. Because every one of us has coveted. Every one of us has coveted. Well, secondly, covetous may lead to the most malicious forms of jealousy. Covetous may lead to the most malicious forms of jealousy. You can think of Joseph's brothers. Think of how they coveted Joseph's status as a son. He was the youngest. He shouldn't have had that status in their minds. And they coveted his status, and it led them to a very malicious form of jealousy. Now, you may say, well, I've never done that. Well, maybe you haven't tried to throw your sibling into a pit and leave them for dead or sold them into slavery. Um, maybe you haven't done that physically. But I bet there's been some times in your mind when you've been around one of your siblings over the years, you didn't have a very happy time around them, and in your mind you were thinking, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of them acting that way. And I'm tired of them getting away with it. That's those seed forms. We all do it. We don't just do it with siblings. We do it with others around us. Think about Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. Now I didn't include Jezebel in this because she wasn't really working out of jealousy. She was just working out of being a narcissistic tyrant. Um, that's a whole other thing. She and Nebuchadnezzar have a lot in common. But Naboth here is a, a jealous man. He's coveting Naboth's vineyard, and it's worked out in such a way that it leads to him being such a crybaby, his wife essentially has... Naboth killed. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we would respect Ahab a little more if he could have had Naboth killed on his own instead of being such a crybaby about it and having his wife do it for him. But nonetheless, he still was a part of having Naboth killed, and it was formed out of jealousy and covetousness. 
covetous, this covetousness in our hearts, it may lead to the most malicious forms of jealousy. We see it worked out in the world as we were young people. When we have our eyes on a particular person and we want to be with that particular person and somebody else kind of slides in in front of us and we begin to have covetousness and jealousy. Sometimes in the world that works out in very, very ugly ways. And thirdly, jealousy in its worst forms may lead to the worst murderous atrocities. Jealousy in its worst murderous or in its worst forms may lead to the worst murderous atrocities. Covetousness worked out to its worst place is a part of jealousy to the point of anger, anger to the point of murder. Cain and Abel. David and Bathsheba. David coveted Uriah's wife. He not only broke the seventh commandment, he broke multiple commandments. And one of those, one of those was the tenth. You could even say in a way, in his coveting, he stole from Uriah. Right? What started out as a look to a stare to a lengthy gaze to the lingering of the mind to the ongoing work of that sin when it could not get covered up the way he wanted it to his covetousness led to murder. It shows you how dangerous covetousness really is. Think about Stephen and the Judaizers. Part of the problem that the Judaizers had with Stephen was is they coveted his position. They hated that the fact that Stephen could speak with such authority. And he preached the gospel to them. Who is he? The greatest form of this jealousy worked out in murderous atrocity is the Pharisees and Jesus. You see, the Pharisees wanted to be the Messiah, didn't they? They coveted the very status and position of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a warning to all of us, how dangerous covetousness is. These Chaldeans are so hungry for power and position. That just because these three young men wouldn't bow to a dead golden image that has eyes and cannot see and ears and cannot hear and a mouth and cannot speak, that they're going to have them murdered. 
They knew what the decree would be. They had already heard it previously. They knew what the sentence was going to be. And they said, you know what? Fine. I want what I want, even if these three men have to die for me to get it. That's why no sin can be declared to be small sin. If it is small, it still needs to be stamped out and fought against. Well, secondly, under this heading, Nebuchadnezzar honored the snitches. We see the narcissistic king caved to his pride. The narcissistic king caved to his pride. In verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. He says, first of all, is this true? That you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And then he gives them an opportunity to recant or repent even before him. And says, after all, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? This is a narcissistic king, and he caved to his own pride. In one sense, Nebuchadnezzar is caving to these snitches and giving them what they desire. And in another sense, he is caving to his own prideful desires. But we can learn greatly from this. Four thoughts. Number one, sinners think they name their own gods. Sinners think they name their own gods. Isn't it interesting? He calls the three men before him and he says to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods? As though if one is really a god, you could name him. Or worship the golden image that I have set up. Secondly, sinners think they are gods. Sinners think they are gods. This goes to the question in verse 15. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Apparently Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's God. He's even thinking in the realm... Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? One of the enlightenment thinkers, Nietzsche, said, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? That shows you the real mindset of mankind, doesn't it? Well, sinners think they name their own gods. Sinners think they are gods. And thirdly, sinners think they may command others in false worship. 
sinners think they may command others in false worship. This is why we have to be real careful listening to the world. The world will always lead us in false worship if given an opportunity. That doesn't mean there's things in the world that can't be helpful and useful. Um, We've said those things before. Antibiotics we're very thankful for. Um, But we don't worship antibiotics. We use them. They're helpful, but we don't worship them. Um, Sometimes antibiotics don't work. Just remembering Michael's situation the last few weeks of his life. He had a blood infection. They tried everything in the ICU they could do to get the blood infection out. Nothing worked. Medicine had reached its end. And ultimately, all things are determined by the sovereignty of God. So we worship Him. We don't worship things. We worship the one true living God. But sinners left to themselves think they may command others in false worship. So here in verse 15, he says to them, Well now, if you're ready, if you're ready to fall before this idol, bow down and worship the image I have made. Now, there's probably not much use for this golden image. I mean, it's just a golden image other than melting it down and using it for something. There are times that there are things that the world wants us to use and they can be useful, but they're not to be worshipped. Even if I'm thankful for things in modern medicine, I can't worship it. Modern medicine... Modern education, modern thinking, that can't be my God. There's only one God. Doesn't mean education's not useful. It is. It's part of the sadness to me of most Christianity today is it's very uneducated. It's not very thoughtful. Most Christianity today is very weak because we don't really know the Scripture, we don't know the truths of the Scripture, and we don't think rightly about the Scripture But there's even things we can gain in education, math and science and geography and history. There's great things to learn. But there's a reason that most people don't want to think. It's because of their sin nature. And the world thinks there is no sin nature, so you can make everybody think. And that's just not the case. But Christians ought to desire to think. They ought to desire to think rightly about the truth. And they ought to desire to put that thinking into action properly according to God's word. Because we're worshiping God himself. And not those who want to lead us in false worship. Well, fourthly and lastly, under this heading of the narcissistic king caved to his own pride. Sinners think they have sovereign control over life and death. Sinners think they have sovereign control over life and death. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is very, very 
brazen in this idea. And we're not often that brazen. But he's very brazen in this idea. Because he says, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? I am the one who's in control and sovereign over life and death. You can bow before the image that I have had made and I will give you life. Or if you don't bow, then I will give you death. And we're not that brazen often, but it's still there in these seed forms in our hearts and our minds. How many places in the scripture does it tell us that God has formed us, knit us, and made us according to his will and his purpose? How many places in scripture does it tell us that we have an appointed time? We will not live longer than God has decreed or designed. Only God is sovereign over life and death. Now, does that give us freedom to go do what we want to do all the time? No. Grace abounds. May we sin all the more? No. It may never be. But at the same time, we have to be very thoughtful to recognize I do not ultimately control every single aspect of my life and especially my beginning and my end. I think if we as Christians would take some of these four things to thought, it would help us in our daily lives to recognize really, really how much we break the first four commandments and then really how much we break the second six. Well, thirdly, under this main heading, Nebuchadnezzar honored the snitches. Thirdly, the regenerate friends worshipped only the true living God. The regenerate friends worshipped only the true living God. The response of these men in verses 16 through 18 is put to us in a very plain fashion. But we need to note two things here. Number one, here we witness one instance of justified civil disobedience. Here we witness one instance of justified civil disobedience. Now this is not the only instance in Scripture of justified civil disobedience, but it is one instance of justified civil disobedience. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the land. Nebuchadnezzar makes the law of the land. And he's made a law and commanded in that law that true believers would sin against the one true living God. It's a blatant law against God himself and the law given to all of mankind. 
God has said to mankind, there is one God and you worship that one God only. But here, these regenerate men, and in essence you ought to see a picture of the remnant of Israel here. Scott pointed out to us Isaiah and the whole section of Israel on on trial. And here we see the remnant. What it means for believers to act in the face of a world that always wants to put them under the test. And here, even when a king has commanded them to go against God in worship, they say, no, this is justified civil disobedience. They did not worship the snitches, they did not worship the golden idol, and they did not worship Nebuchadnezzar. They said, we worship one God and one God only. It's pretty plain that if we're ever in a position as Christians in this nation or if we're in another country, that if the government commands us that we cannot and should not and will not worship the one true living God, and that we must worship the gods of that nation, we must say no. Even if we're to be persecuted, or even if we're put to death, we must say no. We must say no. But secondly, here we witness one instance of complete trust in the Lord. One instance of justified civil disobedience, And we witness one instance of complete trust in the Lord. They trusted the Lord with their very lives. Now, I I say that. I just read that and I thought about it and you heard it and we've said it before. They trust the Lord with their lives. They trust the Lord with their lives. They trust the Lord with their lives. Oh, they trust the Lord with their lives. Think about that for a minute. Think. We are often very protective of our lives. There's a lot of things that we do in our lives to protect ourselves. Right? If I see a fire that's extremely large and burning very, very, very hot, what do I say to myself? Self? That looks really neat. I need to get closer and look longer and I'm going to move as close as possible. I just want to be in the middle of it. Is that what I say? No. Self, get away. We're very protective of our lives. And you need to notice what these men did. text gives us no instance here in this particular setting that these men took up arms. They went shackled and they stood. They said no and they trusted the Lord. 
In verse 17, if it be so, our God we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. We're going to leave it in his hands. They did not suppose one way or the other what God would do. They didn't even make a declaration. We know He will save, save us. They just said, if it be so. Our God is able. Our God is able. And we trust Him. One pastor said, they were doubtful what would happen, but not doubtful that whatever happened would be up to God. They were doubtful what would happen. They didn't know if God would save them from the fire or not. They didn't know if God would swoop down and take Nebuchadnezzar off by a large eagle. They didn't know. They didn't know if Nebuchadnezzar's head was going to explode. They did not know. They were doubtful what would happen, but not doubtful that whatever happened would be up to God. They trusted the Lord with their lives. Secondly, under this heading, they trusted the Lord no matter the outcome. Verse 18. He's able to deliver us from the blazing fire and deliver us out of your, your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They trusted the Lord no matter the outcome. No matter. I have to think for a moment. Have I prayed and asked the Lord to strengthen my trust and faith in Him? That I trust Him no matter the outcome? See, I will pray and I'll ask God, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Will, you. will you give me strength here? And Lord, we really need this to happen or need that to happen. Or do we pray, Lord, your will be done? And do we mean it? No matter the outcome, your will be done. That's how the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. We prayed and prayed that the Lord would give some reprieve to my uncle's cancer. He did not. We prayed and prayed that the Lord would give some reprieve to my father's cancer. He did not. There's been parents that have prayed and prayed that the Lord would protect their children in certain situations. And there's been difficult outcomes at times. Do we trust Him no matter the outcome? Calvin says it is entirely in God's power 
either to snatch us from danger or to withdraw us to a better existence according to his pleasure. They dared not persuade themselves that God would notice them, yet they reposed their lives in the hand of God. I just want to leave you with three thoughts this morning. Number one, covetousness leads to laziness towards concerns for your soul. Covetousness leads to laziness towards concerns for your soul. I think we really do covet God's power. I think deep down in our hearts, we really covet God's power. We really want to be in control. And I can just attest to you all, I don't know about y'all, okay? But I'll tell you my own heart, I really want to be in control. I just look at the world around and I just think, man, if these people would just listen, there's at least a few of us that could make this world a better place. But what if they don't listen? Do I trust God in the outcome? I think sometimes I really do covet God's control. I want to be in control. Think about these Chaldeans. Why why weren't they just happy with the fact that their lives had already been saved once? If it weren't for Daniel earlier, they would have already had their heads lopped off. They couldn't even appreciate the fact that although these three men who necessarily didn't have anything to do with saving them, they were Daniel's friend who did save their necks. And Daniel was the one who, by God's grace, kept them from being put to death because they couldn't interpret the dream or they couldn't even tell the dream. No, they couldn't be happy with that, could they? Covetousness leads to laziness towards concerns for your own soul. They weren't thinking about their own soul. They were just thinking about what they wanted. Number two, covetousness pushes out the concern of fighting against sin. Covetousness pushes out the concern of fighting against sin. If we covet and covet and covet, we're going to a place where we won't fight against sin. We're too worried about what we want to deal with sin as it is. Often in covetousness, I am concerned about taking more in than getting rid of anything. So covetousness blinds me of the necessary fight to push sin out and focuses me only on that which I want to take in for my perceived pleasure and contentment. Sin gradually becomes less of a trouble in my mind because my contentment is defined by me and what I want for me. Thirdly, 
covetousness gathers the thinking and distractions of the human crowd. Covetousness gathers the thinking and distractions of the human crowd. As one writer said, couldn't these three men have just said, well, after all, the whole nation is bowing down. I mean, we'll just join in a few times, get it over with, and then we'll go back to our lives. They would have been coveting not only the well-being of others, but coveting what they wanted for their own well-being instead of trusting in the Lord, even not knowing the outcome. As Matthew Henry said, they might be excused if they should go down the stream when the current was so strong. I mean, after all, it was a whole nation. And you're standing right before the king. That's a lot of pressure, right? I mean, I have to admit to you, if I'm summoned before the president, it's going to be a little bit... I mean, you're going to be... If I'm standing before the president, the whole of the Congress and the Senate, and uh, the, the Supreme Court, and they're all in unison telling me to do one thing, Oh, I'll be strong. You want to? You better hope by God's grace you're strong and not because of who you think you are. The minute you and I start thinking that in and of ourselves we can handle anything and everything is the minute we need to recognize we've been blinded. We need to be careful and be thoughtful and be wary. That covetousness gathers the thinking and distractions of the human crowd. Let's not give in to the world. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be careful. I pray the Lord give us minds to think and see how covetousness works. how it's so dangerous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're merciful to deal with us according to the truth of your word. We ask that your spirit continue to work according to your will and your will alone. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ask and pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.